Listener Production. Hey, welcome to The Briefing. It's Sasha Barbagat here with Katrina Blowers. Every year, nearly half a million students reach their dream of starting a uni degree in Australia. But imagine having to get there all by yourself without the support of your parents or anyone in your family. From the age of 16 until 21, that's a really big chunk of your like adult life and you're getting support and then it just disappears overnight. I didn't even turn 21 yet when I got cut off from it. And I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Yeah, so that's the voice of Ruby, who is going to be sharing her story with us today. She's had to overcome a monumental barrier to get into uni and chase her career goal. She was in out-of-home care from the age of six. She was also briefly homeless as a teenager, but now she's in her second year of uni thanks to a scholarship. So how all of that works and how we can break that cycle of poverty. We are going to be chatting about that in the second half of this episode straight after the headlines. But first, as always, let's get into the big news of the day. It is Monday, the 11th of December. The federal government will announce its new migration strategy today. The new plan contains 25 commitments following a review which found Australia's migration program is not fit for purpose. Now, it'll include the minimum English language requirements for international students to be increased and also include a crackdown on the number of migrants living in a permanently temporary state in Australia. Also over the weekend, the federal government flagged a new foreign investor reform, but housing advocates want them to take it a step further. Investor fees will be increased by double for those that leave homes empty, and the new rules will triple the taxes for foreigners who buy existing houses in Australia. Yes, so these vacancy fees help raise around $5 million a year, and under this plan, some of those charges are going to go up to $169,000 a year. So that's a fair whack. But Chalmers did say that only 20 or so breaches were issued in the last year. Some big changes coming in for the final couple of weeks left of the year. Um, it is worth noting that uh, skilled migration is going to be a huge focus for the government. So highly skilled workers in the technology and green energy industries, pathways for those kinds of workers are going to be made a lot easier and also for core skills. So bringing in tradies, so, you know, hopefully help ease the housing crisis. Mm. And the migration issue has been kind of in the focus lately amid the housing crisis. So it's interesting these two announcements have come kind of in tandem almost. And the government has also revealed that Australia's net migration level has peaked last financial year at 510,000 and it's forecast to fall to more normal levels down to 375,000 next year and then again in 2025 to 250,000. So I think this is a case of the Albanese government recognising that people are concerned about being able to buy homes and rent homes in Australia and addressing the migration issue is part of that. Over the weekend, Anastasia Palaszczuk announced she is stepping down as Queensland's Premier and leaving politics for good. I will finish this week at the end of this week as Premier and the next Premier of Queensland is for caucus to decide on Friday, giving MPs time to come back. And soon the people of Queensland will have their say. Yep, so that was a teary Anastasia Palaszczuk yesterday announcing that. Now, she's been in the top job for eight years, becoming Australia's longest-serving female Premier. 
which is huge when you think about where she started back in 2015. You know, people often called her the accidental premier. She was um, lobbed into that role as uh, opposition leader, then opposition leader. And she um, took the victory away from Campbell Newman. I'm not sure if any people outside of Queensland can remember Campbell Newman, but he came in with an absolute landslide and then became one of probably the most controversial Queensland premiers of all time when he sacked a whole heap of public servants. So Anastasia Palaszczuk, you know, she was probably um, a very divisive figure in the end. She she started out being a much-loved premier, but of course, you know, through COVID, um, brought in a whole heap of very tough border closures, Sasha, which I think was something that affected people everywhere in Australia. Yeah, I was living in Melbourne at the time during uh, the worst of COVID. Uh, Great time to be in Melbourne. And I was working with a guy from Queensland whose father passed away and he could not get to the funeral. He had to watch the funeral on a live stream. And I think as far as the rest of the country could see, Queensland has supported the Premier's decision to keep a hard border uh, with the rest of the country, or at least with uh, New South Wales and Victoria. But when you worked or you knew someone who was directly affected in such a horrible way, for me, it was really hard to see the good in such a staunch policy. Uh, But she was re-elected afterwards. And, you know, she's I understand there's some issues lately, perhaps um, leaving before she was pushed out or, or lost the election coming up in 10 months' time. But, yeah, she's also got some some good legacies. Katrina, the Olympics, she won the Olympics for Brizzy. Yeah, that's right, and that's a big feather in her cap, which she says is a real highlight of her time as Premier. Um, but then, you know, in, in recent months, there's been a huge amount of speculation that uh, the party just didn't support her anymore because opinion polls showed that, that she wasn't as popular as she used to be. And there were all those scenes when she went away recently to Italy with her partner where she was followed by journalists in hotel lobbies, people asking her, you know, was she thinking about stepping down? And she cited that as a key moment in yesterday's press conferences when she thought, you know what, I've had enough of this job. I can't even take a holiday anymore. It is now time for me to go. So yeah, this week we'll be deciding in Queensland who our interim premier will be because we are going to the polls next October. So a big time of change in Queensland. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And we've gotten a look at the royal family's Christmas cards with King Charles and Queen Camilla, along with the Prince and Princess of Wales, releasing them on socials overnight. They actually couldn't look more different. The monarch choosing a snap from his coronation, looking very regal. Him and Camilla done up to the nines. They're wearing traditional royal robes and crowns. Uh, Wills and Kate have gone a bit kind of 90s boy band. Their snap is in black and white. It features them and their three kids all dressed in white button-down shirts and jeans. These were taken earlier this year, which just goes to show the level of planning and styling that goes into this. And believe it or not, people do still send Christmas cards, Sasha. Um, you know, they, they apparently send them to uh, key royal representatives, government figures, you know, supporters, uh, maybe even some lucky, you know, commoners might even get a Christmas card. What did you make of it? Look, I liked Kate and Will's strategy. Um, I just think it felt 
appropriate. Uh, when you compare it with Charles and Camilla's and they're standing there with all their robes and the crowns and it's from his coronation. I was actually in London recently and I saw the crown jewels and looking at them, I just kind of went, oh, there is just so much wealth tied up in this family. And the fact that Wills and Kate have gone, hey, we're just in button down shirts and jeans. We're just like you. I think I saw a comment, someone said it's like a JC Penny commercial, which is, you know, like a big jeans kind of retailer in the United States. <laughs> I like the strategy of being like, we're like you. It's all good. Whereas, yeah, you felt you feel distant from Charles and Camilla from looking at the photos. But everything feels planned at the moment with the royal family, given what's happening with Harry and Meghan. So, you know, it's probably on purpose. Yeah, a lot of people did say a black and white photo doesn't really exude that much joy. But um, I'm with you. I think it looks way more appropriate than that sort of lofty uh, dripping in fur and jewels that, you know, let's face it, a lot of people's lives couldn't be more different to that right now. Yeah, especially in England, I, I know, and, you know, the UK in general, they've got it the same as us with, you know, soaring prices of energy and groceries, and it just feels a little bit tone deaf. Uh, but, you know, people who love the royals love the royals, and they love seeing them all dressed up. So, sure, I'm sure it uh, hits hits good notes with, with a lot of people in the UK and, and across the Commonwealth. But for me, I vote Kate and Wills. All right, Sasha, we're about to jump into a really inspiring conversation with Ruby on how to get more kids and care to break that cycle of poverty and go on to study uni. It's been called a national disgrace. That's the estimate released by La Trobe Uni researchers that just 1% of kids in state care end up going on to be accepted to study at university. So in Australia, out-of-home care is a statutory care arrangement for people under the age of 18 who can't live with their birth families due to either chronic child abuse or neglect. It's estimated 40,000 young people are living in that situation right now and they've got to overcome huge social and economic barriers to get to uni, which makes that cycle of poverty really hard to break. So how do we overcome this? Well, Ruby Sate is a one percenter who has, and she's kindly agreed to share her story with us on the briefing. Ruby, what would you like people to know about what it's like to grow up in care? Can you share some of your story with us? I think it's really important that people know that like, it can be really hard being a young person out of home care. I was bullied just for being in out-of-home care when I was in high school and it really isolated me and alienated me from my peers. So I think being patient and being nurturing to young people who are in care is the best thing that young people in care can receive and have. I know that some people can be cut off from their families, cut off from what they've known, what they've um, loved, and they can feel like they don't belong in the world anymore and they can be angry and frustrated with what they're doing and I think that one of the hardest things that I experienced was the fact that I didn't know what I was going to do with my life I didn't know that I was if I was going to be able to finish school if I was going to go to uni of all things it was the area of unknown and would I even have a life that I was happy with and proud of I'm thinking that, you know, from the age of six, you being in out of home care, that you would have had to just grow up so fast in ways that I can't even wrap my head around. And then there's that 
added element of just not having, you know, people either around you, um, family members or parents who believe in you, who tell you that you can be more than you think you are. What, what are some of the things that you would like to share with us about how that really changed your life? So from the age of six, I've been in and out of out-of-home care. So that either be kingship care, which is living with a family member, or foster care, which is living with a family who has trained to be a foster carer to look after young people in care. And I think that one of the hardest things was the fact that like I had my brother and sister that also were like many years after the age of six for me, but uh, they started going into out-of-home care as well. And so it wasn't just me that I had to think about and trying to navigate life for myself. It was also them that I had to think about and like make sure that they weren't having the experience that I was having because my number one goal in life now is to make sure that they don't have the experience that I've experienced and make sure that they have the best childhood that they can possibly have despite the fact that they've had similar situations that I've been put in. And I think that living in out-of-home care at such a young age, you you lose the spark in your eyes and you lose a spark in yourself that brings joy to when you are a kid. And I think that that's one thing that I really hate about the, my experience out of home care is that from a young age, I lost that spark that and that joy that you see in young people that should be treasured for so many years. And I had to uh, toughen up a little bit more than others and kind of figure out how to stand up for myself and, advocate for myself so that I was heard and so that people would take my thoughts and my feelings into consideration when making big choices like where I would live, where I would go to school. Would I be able to see family members? Would I be able to do the things I love and be able to be told, yes, you can do that. And if I didn't want to do something, they'll be like, yes, that's okay, Ruby. So very much navigating life from a young age and being like, knowing what's, what's my limitations, what I feel comfortable with and what I want my life to look like. So you've overcome all of these barriers, which are huge to chase your dreams and get into uni. What happened there? How did you become that one percenter, that part of the one percent of people who do go on to tertiary study? What shifted or what was the the key sort of moment that made you believe that you could do it? The key moment? Oh, that's putting me on the spot. I can't really think of the key moment because the thing is that I've always wanted to go to uni. I was always the one that even though I struggled with education and I struggled with going to school, I went to like nine schools in the space of just like prep to high school. Like it's like the amount of schools I went to is ridiculous, but I always wanted to go to uni. And I think it was when I dropped out of year 10. So I had dropped out of year 10 mainstream school and I was like, no, I'm done. I'm not doing education anymore. I'm, I'm done with this. And then after a couple of months, I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like, what am I going to do if I don't get an education? Like if I don't finish school, what will I do? So I re-enrolled, but I went to TAFE instead. So Go TAFE in Wangaratta is what I enrolled in. And then I finished my VCAL and then I was like, well, I don't have an ATAR. How do I get into uni? So then I was navigating how to get into uni. And I had moved to Ballarat to uh, study a certificate for in professional writing editing. But sadly, that wasn't something that really helped me in my journey to become a journalist. So I unenrolled from that and then went to Deakin Uni or Deakin College, I should say. And I applied and I got accepted within 24 hours, which was really amazing. And so I started that a diploma of communications majoring in journalism 
And that was February last year, actually, that I did that. I finished it this year and then I went on to study my second year of my Bachelor of Communications majoring in journalism. And I think that like one thing, like the one moment that I realized I wanted to be a journalist was when I started creating a blog for my VCAL class, just so that I could write down the amazing things that we were doing and like the fun things. Because at VCAL, we were known as the outcasts of our, not even just the TAFE of the actual whole town that I lived in. It was like, if you were at VCAL, this was your last resort because no other school kind of wanted you and no other school thought you fit in and you like, you were just an outcast. So I embraced it and I made a life for myself that I'm actually really proud of. So if we're looking at the key ingredients of what it's going to take to break this cycle and raise the statistics beyond just the 1% of people in care who end up making it on to study a tertiary education, obviously having people who believe in you is key, but then having access to funding is also a massive ingredient in this. A hundred percent. So bit of a backstory, young people in out-of-home care get support from the age of roughly 16 until the age of 21. But once you're 21, you are cut off. And that means that all the support, and usually it's like um, supports like Better Futures and stuff like that. And they like, they support with like maybe phone credit or maybe like some meal vouchers, or maybe like if you're moving, they might buy some furniture for you. So like from the age of 16 until 21, that's a really big chunk of your like adult life. And you're getting support and then it just disappears overnight. So it wasn't even, I didn't even turn 21 yet when I got cut off from it. And I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I have a very basic casual job and I I live off Centrelink. What am I going to do? How am I going to support myself in living by myself, going to uni every day and living the life that I want for myself in Melbourne of all places, which is not a cheap place to live, I might add. I looked around on the internet trying to figure out maybe there's a scholarship that I'm eligible for because due to the fact that I was doing a diploma at Deakin University, I wasn't eligible for any of the scholarships there. So I was like, well, what if there's a scholarship for someone who's been in out-of-home care? Like surely there's something, like surely we have some support out there. And so I, I did a little research and I did a little looking on the internet and I found the scholarship that I have from the uh, Sisters of Charity Foundation. And I was like, this is too good to be true. But I put in my application and I got the scholarship. And so far, it has been the most amazing, supportive foundation and scholarship that I could have received because it gave me a chance to focus on my education in a way that allowed me to succeed. And I don't think I would actually be passing my units at uni with HDs and with distinctions if it wasn't for having that security of a scholarship. That was Ruby Sate. All right, we're going to bring in Estelle Muller now, who's from the Sisters of Charity Foundation, which gives care leavers like Ruby the opportunity to access higher education via scholarships. Estelle, thanks for joining us. How many scholarships do you offer each year and how can anyone listening get involved? The number that we can offer is dependent on the number of donors who are willing to fund them, basically. So the more people who can put their hands up and uh, say that they will fund a scholarship, then the more scholarships we can offer. So the scholarship value is um, we give up to $10,000 for young people who want to go to TAFE. Um, So that's $5,000 a year. 
for up to two years. And for university, we give $30,000 over the length of the degree. The more people who can help us um, by funding scholarships, then the more we can offer. This could be so life-changing. For anyone listening, how do you get involved? So that anyone who wants to get involved can contact uh, the Sisters of Charity Foundation by uh, going to our website, which is sistersofcharityfoundation.org.au. And if we have any uh, young people who have a care background who are listening and would like to apply, they can also go to our website, sistersofcharityfoundation.org.au, and they can download an application form for our scholarship there. That was Estelle Muller from the Sisters of Charity Foundation. So watch this space. I reckon we're going to be hearing Ruby's name a lot more in the future. She's about to begin an internship at the ABC in Melbourne, shadowing journalists on their breakfast program. What a (laughs) go-getter. So that website again, if you want to get involved and help fund a scholarship, is sistersofcharityfoundation.org.au. Listener.